Hi, friends, let's pray. Our glorious King, we exalt you today. We praise your name. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. Your kingdom no one can fathom. Your greatness is everlasting. Lord, our sin runs deep, so deep it's hidden from others and even ourselves sometimes. But you see every crack and crevice of our being. Please forgive us for those sins that seem to be hidden, ones we don't like to admit or even are afraid to talk about. We acknowledge we have so much pride and a lack of desire to let Christ be our true identity. Please forgive us for making our self-image an idol. Please forgive us for our lack of vulnerability with others. And forgive us for letting bitterness rest on our hearts. We ask that you would search our hearts today and reveal any area in our lives that we need to bring before you or our brother or sister in Christ. God, you have promised us if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. What a glorious hope and promise we have. You are our shield who saves us. Thank you for freedom from sin. There is no condemnation for those of us in Christ Jesus. We are so grateful for the help you send daily through the Holy Spirit as we attempt to set our minds on things of Christ. Lord, so many of us are hardened to sin that we don't allow ourselves to forgive each other. I pray that each individual here and watching would be changed, changed so our hearts would see how much you have forgiven us, that we would be able to share that same forgiveness and grace with the people in our lives. God, I pray that Mission Fellowship could be a church of forgiveness and vulnerability, that you would protect our hearts from the bitterness that creeps in. We also ask for humble hearts and a teachable spirit. May we hear one another, and may we let go of the pride that's in our hearts that tells us lies. Lord, as our kids start attending school again in person, we pray for protection from the anxiety and the fear that threatens to overcome so many. Please help the administrators and teachers to prepare for having kids in their classrooms for possibly the first time in a year. And may there be a true sense of calm in those classrooms. Please continue to use this building for your glory. Thank you that we have a space to worship and gather. I ask for the ears to hear what you would say to us through Hans today. And in your holy name, amen. 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 You guys can be seated. Thank you, Wendy, and well done. You guys are in good voice today. You can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Daniel 4, starting in verse 19, and we're going to finish up Daniel 4 today. Go ahead. Come on up, Ryan. Ryan's going to save me here by giving me a couple of extra batteries just in case my battery pack dies here. Thank you, brother. Sorry about that. Well, this last year, something happened that no one ever thought possible. And no, I'm not talking about the pandemic. I'm talking about what happened because of the pandemic, the run on stores, and specifically toilet paper. Yes, some of you know where I'm going with this. Now, most of us probably assumed whenever a, na a natural disaster, an emergency would happen, that there would be a run on things, the food, water, medical supplies, but toilet paper, really? Anybody else have that response when you saw it? At the very beginning of the run, my wife and I happened to be in a store, and we saw in the distance that they were moving in a pallet of a bunch of new toilet paper, and they were putting it in place. And so I kind of casually walked over because I thought, oh, you know, I could grab one package, you know, that'll help us. And as I started to walk towards the poor um, employee that was guarding the toilet paper with his life, right, it was almost as if it was Fort Knox and these were gold bricks, right, uh, two people basically ran in front of me, dove in front of me, and I looked at them and saw kind of this twitchiness about them, right? They were needing toilet paper very, very much. I realized in the moment that these people were in survival mode, and so I let them go ahead of me. They weren't necessarily using their executive functions in their brain anymore, and they were operating on pure adrenaline because they needed TP. And so I let them go ahead. But it made me think of all the times that you or I act in a similar animal instinct. All those times where after the instinct is passed, we look back and say, well, that wasn't me. I, I didn't really mean to do that. 
but we acted in an animal instinct. It's a place where we've lost reason and are instead acting in our beastly instincts. Maybe it's been in conflict with a loved one or a boss. Maybe it's under survival situations. Maybe it's been when we are engaging in sinful behavior and we look back and say, why did I do that? We all have the capacity to devolve and become subhuman in our beastly selves. And in the text before us today, in the remainder of Daniel chapter 4, we will hear the story of the second vision that the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, is trying to interpret. And in this dream, we saw last week that there is a great deal of imagery that ties us back to the garden and to the fall and symbolism, some of the earliest stories in the Bible. We saw that the simple structure of the chapter was really these two bookends of glorification, these doxologies, and between it was the story of the pride and humiliation of Nebuchadnezzar. He's given the vision of God, as we'll see today, as a warning to humble himself, but then, unfortunately, he refuses and is instead forced to be humbled by God so that he might graciously ascribe his honor to God and repent of his beastly arrogance. The chapter ends with a statement that we've used as the title of the sermon this morning, God humbles those who walk in pride. God humbles those who walk in pride. All of this is building up to chapter 7 in Daniel. The climax of the whole book, the hinge of the whole book, in which the Son of Man, the image of the Messiah, is given rule and reign over all the cosmos. All chapters 1 through 6 are about individuals, primarily kings, being humbled. And chapters uh, after chapter 7, 8 to the end of Daniel is going to be about nations being humbled. And this is for the purpose, here in chapter 4, of what we see in verse 17. We saw last week where it says that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. The entire book of Daniel is about God's sovereignty, about God's reign as king, and about the fact that any glory we have comes from him, not in and of ourselves. But within the portion of the story that we're going to finish off today, we're going to dig down into the rest of chapter 4 to see amazing parallels of our own lives and the need we have to humble ourselves. We each need to embrace the humiliation of God that was evidenced on the cross of Calvary for us so that we might repent We might turn from our sin and not fall into the same trap as Nebuchadnezzar does in this story where we are completely taken over by our sinful, beastly nature. Now, I hope you guys are ready because there is a lot of information in this. I know I gave you a fire hose last week to to drink from. I'm going to give you a fire hose again this week. But it's good stuff, and I'm hopeful that it will lead to a lot of fruit in our lives. So let's jump back into chapter 4. And uh, we looked at the opening doxology and the setting and the dream itself. This week, we're going to have a rehashing of the dream, its interpretation, and then the way in which it's carried out. So take a look there at Daniel 4, 19, and I'm going to read through the end of the chapter. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar, Daniel, answered and said, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. In other words, uh, there's something heavy that's about to happen here. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heaven lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. Because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, okay, another phrase for an angel, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. 
And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the, from that, uh, from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence, and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws." Now he gets back into the letter that he's giving and providing the story within to the rest of the kingdom, and he provides this last doxology. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble." The first point we can gather from this text is this. Like Nebuchadnezzar, without repentance, we are destined to act like beasts. The application for us is that like Nebuchadnezzar, without repentance, we are destined to act like beasts. Last week, I spent a good portion of our time connecting the dots between the stories of creation and the fall, as well as the sin of Cain, with the imagery that's used in this dream. One more connection, however, lies in the background of the context of this passage. Notice verses 29 through 30. King Nebuchadnezzar is here walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon towards the latter end of his life. We know historically and archaeologically that most of his building projects would have been complete by this point. And so you can imagine Nebuchadnezzar surveying all that he had accomplished. Not only had he conquered varied lands and peoples, But his home city and capital, Babylon, was a formidable fortress. It was beautiful. You can still go see uh, reconstruction of the Ishtar Gate, that place that's blue there with the gold on it, uh, if you were to go to Iraq today. Uh, But Babylon was a wonderful, amazing city. Its walls were so wide, it had double walls, and its walls were so wide that two chariots could drive alongside one another on top of the walls. Contained within its walls were beautiful temples to their pagan gods, the likes of which were not seen elsewhere in the world. But these paled in comparison to what many historians believe to be his greatest architectural accomplishment. You see, Nebuchadnezzar had a favored wife named Queen Queen Amethyst that was from an area of Persia that was known for its greenery. It had these beautiful valleys and hills and forests. And so in order to show love for her, Nebuchadnezzar constructed a series of tiered or overhanging gardens on a temple-like structure. Here's an artist's rendering of it. It was known as the Hanging Gardens of Babylon and was known as one of the seven man-made wonders of the ancient world. Now remember, guys, this is before irrigation, before pumps, before electricity, and so this was world-renowned. That's why it's one of the seven ancient wonders. So having all that garden imagery in our minds from last week, linking us back to the Garden of Eden and the first Adam, imagine Nebuchadnezzar walking on top of his palace, overlooking his gardens and his kingdom, and thinking to himself, look at all that I have accomplished by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. 
It's in this moment that we see most explicitly the pride that's at the root of Nebuchadnezzar's downfall. Rather than being the thing formed that is to reflect the one who formed him, Nebuchadnezzar has placed himself in the position of majesty as the source of power in life. He has placed himself ultimately in the position of God. In doing so, he's taking on the same position uh, of arrogant pride as his first forefather, Adam, who likewise positioned himself as God and removed the one true God from his throne. In both cases, Adam and Nebuchadnezzar, it was the Most High God who put them in the position of reign and authority that they enjoyed. And yet their pride, in their pride, they forgot God elevated themselves to the position of defining good and evil and gave themselves over in submission to the beastly adversary of God, the serpent himself. Rather than ruling over the beasts that God had declared that they were to subdue, he now became one of them. And look at what happened as a result. Like Adam, the kingdom departed from him. In both cases, their pride and arrogance allowed the enemy to rule and reign instead. Like Adam, he's driven from the kingdom he was supposed to reign over and is instead cast into the wilderness. Like Adam, his ability to reign out of the source of God's righteousness was cut down and he became enslaved as if bound by an iron fetter to his own animal instincts. So much so that he even seems to become animal-like in his very appearance and hygiene or lack thereof. But this is not just Nebuchadnezzar. It's not just Adam. It's not just Cain. Friends, this is all of us. The message of the Bible is that we have all turned aside from God and given ourselves over to our beastly nature. Would you turn with me to Romans chapter 1 and take a look at what Paul says there. Romans 1. Give me an amen when you get there. Two people, anybody else? All right, good. You're following me, good. Romans 1.18. It says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What's the truth? That God is God and we are not. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, we, are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. This is the beastly nature coming out. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That's where I get the idea of exchanging, being the thing formed, who is supposed to reflect the one who formed us, and instead making idols ourselves to reflect us as God, okay? Verse 24, therefore God gave them up, and notice that phrase, God gave them up. He didn't curse them, he didn't press them, he gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now, how many of you have ever seen Star Wars? Anybody? A few of you? Okay. You should check it out. It's a pretty popular movie. At the beginning of every Star Wars movie, what do they have? They have the the text that scrolls, right? This should be the text that scrolls before the stories of Adam, the story of Cain, the story of Nebuchadnezzar, the story of Israel, the story of Hans Rasmussen, right? Right? The scary part, dear friends, is it isn't just those people out there. It's about us right here. It's about the fact that all of mankind and the pervasive sin that we find at the core of our spiritual DNA keeps us enslaved. Now let's keep reading. Take a look at verse 26. Through 32. For this reason, God gave them up, notice that phrasing again, to dishonorable passions. Again, you can get the mentality of this beastliness. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, 
men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up, notice the phrase again, to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Man, does this sound like our world or what? Now, what is the outcome if we continue in this path without repentance? And friends, I want to acknowledge there's a lot of this that is talking about sexual immorality, and we can't toss that aside. But notice that it's more than that as well. It's all avenues in which we engage our beastly subhuman nature, okay? What's the outcome if we don't repent? Take a look at 2 verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man. And notice that there's no caveat there. No is no, zero. You have zero excuses, O man. Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Does anybody else need to take a breath? This is heavy for appropriate heaviness. This is huge. And if we cast this aside, we are those foolish people. We are acting contrary to truth. We all, dear friends, operate as beasts if left to our own desires, if God gives us up to ourselves. We all need to hear the words of God to Adam's son Cain that we looked at last week. This is from Genesis 4, 6-7. Why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Like Nebuchadnezzar, without repentance, we are destined to act as beasts. Now, this idea is one based not just in biblical truth, but for all you Nacho Libre fans out there, it's also based in science if you believe in science. (laughs) Love the movie. I got to go with it. Sorry. I want you to know that I am not, nor do I claim to be a neuroscientist or a specialist on the brain, but because of the schooling I've gone through for counseling, I have a basic understanding of how the brain works. And core to that idea is that while the brain is unbelievably complicated and we are still plumbing the depths of our knowledge about it, we know that it generally has three major sections when it comes to how we act under stress. For sake of brevity, I call these the thinking brain, the feeling brain, and the automatic brain. That's how I describe it in counseling for people. The thinking brain is the cortex. The feeling brain is the limbic system and a portion of that midbrain on the pituitary gland. And then the automatic brain is the midbrain on down through the brainstem. Okay? In terms of development, we as human beings develop from the bottom to the top. Babies are able to do all the normal automatic things like breathe and blink, flinch, eliminate waste, etc. Then the limbic system starts to come more and more online in that wonderful year we often call the terrible twos, where emotions develop and small children are able to engage them. They've been developing the whole time, but they're starting to come on board more. And this eventually goes into overdrive during the pubescent years we all loved so much, where our emotions overran us. 
Then over time, the cortex comes online slowly but is not fully formed until around our mid to late 20s. This is why you can't drive a rental car until 25. Because if all you have is emotion on board but no thinking, you're going to end up in a wreck, right? Now, teenagers in the room, this is why you feel overwhelmed by your emotions and you can't think your way out of them. You got the limbic system online, but not the thinking part of your brain yet. And this is why you need to listen to wise counsel like God-honoring parents or God-honoring friends, okay? Now, in times of peace and lack of stress, the manner in which we utilize our brains works from the top down, not the bottom up, but the top down. We think that influences how we feel, and we then send signals to our body to do things that we want. But under stress or trauma, this reverses. And unless brains are finely tuned, finely disciplined, and quite honestly given miraculous strength by the Holy Spirit, our automatic brain takes sensory input that is threatening, like the bear standing in front of us, for example, captures it in the feeling center of our brain, fear, and then shuts down the thinking brain and operates primarily out of emotion or what we would call fight, flight, or freeze. Now, this doesn't just happen with a bear in front of us. It happens when we're arguing with our spouse, arguing with our children or our parents, talking to our boss. Anytime we have stress, thinking shuts down unless it's finely tuned, and then everything else takes over. And friends, this is why in the New Testament, long before Freud, long before psychology, Paul was a fantastic counselor. You know why? He said, think. Take all thoughts captive. Take your body, your emotions that are good. We shouldn't cast aside our emotions, but steward them under submission to God and in sacrifice to his glory. Take, for example, 2 Corinthians uh, Corinthians 10, 5 through 6. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Notice, friends, that it's not telling you you should be ashamed about the thoughts that pop into your head or the emotions that bubble up. What it's saying is once those appear, what you're supposed to do is grab them and take them captive. Parents, this is very important to help your children understand. Emotions are not bad. They're to be stewarded. If we do not train ourselves in godliness and righteousness proactively and passionately war against the flesh and the power of the Spirit, It will overcome us as it overcame Cain, as it overcame Adam, and as it overcame Nebuchadnezzar. And this, dear friends, is why I reinforce for you time and time and time again that it is not safe for it to be just you and Jesus. Our minds are built beautifully to justify, self-insulate, and protect. So when a person comes to me and tells me, that the reason they are doing something outside of biblical wisdom is because Jesus told them to or that they have a peace about it, I always, after a very long sigh, (laughs) ask them if they have sought out other counsel than their own feeling brain. Three times in Proverbs, it says that we are established and that there is safety in a multitude of counselors. That doesn't mean me, myself, and I. And so part of humbling ourselves is seeking out godly counsel in God's word and God's people. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. Let's go back to Nebuchadnezzar. Like Nebuchadnezzar, if we stand firm in pride and do not humble ourselves before God and one another, we too will be given over to our beastly desires. Let's think about what signs we might find so that we know when this has started to occur. Because I don't know about you, but I often don't notice that I'm standing in pride. So how do we know we've given ourselves over to pride and beastly flesh? I'm going to give you a couple of lists here. And so if you're a note taker, you can take them down. Uh, Otherwise, just read them and see what the Lord's convicting you of. First, in Nebuchadnezzar's story, we see signs of pride. The first one we see is that when we believe that we are the source of blessing and life is for the purpose of our glory, we are standing in pride. Our relationship with God is more about what he can give us rather than the praise I owe him, okay? Secondly, when we feel driven from the kingdom of God and his people. 
when you start to become one of those people who, rather than listening to godly counsel, points the finger at everybody in your local church and says, well, you're all wrong, I'm the one that's right, that's probably a pretty good idea that you're standing in pride. Third, when we act out of selfishness and self-interest rather than selflessness and the worship of God. Okay, it talks about there in Romans this idea of being self-seeking, and that's what Nebuchadnezzar was doing. It wasn't about uh, the people in his kingdom and the worship of God, it was about himself. And fourth, lastly, when our hearts have become hardened to the call to repentance. So if a friend or two, if two witnesses come to you and they say, hey, brother, time to repent, sister, time to repent, and you harden your heart against them, most likely you're already standing in pride. Okay? Now, Nebuchadnezzar was operating in only his earthly flesh and had been cut off, losing connection with the heavens and from God himself. Uh, hey, Steve, would you mind going open the door? It's Noah's flood out there, and there's some people that are trying to get in. Thank you, brother. It's bad out there. Whew. Don't worry, this building floats. Just kidding. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was operating in only his earthly flesh and had been cut off, losing connection with the heavens and from God himself. Now, we can look at Scripture, and there are plenty of other biblical signs of pride. And I started to develop what turned into almost the second topical teaching, and I reeled it back in. But I still want to give you the thoughts here, okay? I want to give you some other biblical signs of pride. So what I'm going to do is give you this list, and you can write these down with the Scriptures and go back and read them yourself and talk about them in your small groups, okay? So go ahead and start scribbling those down. First, we know that we're acting in pride when we're acting in the works and producing the works of the flesh. We all know the fruit of the Spirit, but in Galatians 5, 16 through 21, it talks about works of the flesh. You can literally use that as an inventory and see, am I standing in any one of these? If you are, you're possibly in pride, most likely. Secondly, when we find ourselves harming rather than serving. In Galatians 5, Paul also talks about biting and devouring one another. These ideas of beastly urges that we're harming one another as opposed to loving and serving one another. Third, in 2 Timothy, Paul talks about when we refuse to submit to godly counsel and wisdom and begin searching out counsel that will itch our ears. I couldn't help but think of our wonderful little family dog, our corgi named Winston. Man, he is a fantastic dog, and what does he do when he's feeling an itch in his ears? He will go around the room to figure out who's going to actually itch it, and then when they do, he leans into them. We do the same thing when we're in pride. We don't want to listen to the people who are giving us biblical counsel, so we will find and ferret out the one person who will agree with our pridefulness so that we can stand in rigidity. Fourth, when we listen to the world over and above the church and God's word, in 1 John 4, John says, if people aren't listening to us, then they're probably not from us. Why are you listening to the world? And right now, that's happening a ton. People are listening to every podcast under the sun about everything that's going on in the world except listening to the Word of God. Fifth, when we show hardness of heart that causes us to refuse repentance, refuse reconciliation, and refuse hearing from the community of believers with which we've covenanted, you can look at what Paul says in Ephesians 4 there, that we're supposed to speak the truth in love, but if we harden our hearts against it, it's a pretty good sign of being in prideful rigidity. And then lastly, when we return to sin that we have acknowledged and from which we have repented. In 2 Peter 2, Peter uses the imagery of a dog returning to its vomit. How many of you find that appetizing? Anybody? No? It's gross, and it's meant to be. There's a beastliness about it. So perhaps you can think of others and share them with your small group, but this is a quick list I could come up with. When we look at these lists, the, the list from Nebuchadnezzar, other biblical signs, ask ourselves the question, which of these signs are you convicted by and what others can we think of? For you, which of these are you convicted by? Don't think about what everybody else is doing. Ask the question, what am I convicted by? What do I need to adjust? Because like Nebuchadnezzar, without repentance, we are destined to act as beasts. And this being the case, the second application that we can see from Daniel is that like Nebuchadnezzar, we are called to repent and break off our sins.
Like Nebuchadnezzar, we are called to repent and break off our sins. If you missed that, that last slide at all, it's going to be online and you can grab it uh, after the service. But like Nebuchadnezzar, we are called to repent and break off our sins. Even before the dream came true for Nebuchadnezzar, turn back there with me to Daniel. Even before it came true, notice that God gave Nebuchadnezzar a chance to repent. He hadn't been turned into a beast yet. And through Daniel, Daniel came to him graciously and said this in Daniel 4.27. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Now, Daniel begs him to break off his sins and iniquities and instead practice righteousness and justice. Now, any of you who went through Isaiah with us, this should be ringing a bell, this idea of righteousness and justice. It's an idiom for submitting to the throne or the authority of the one who Psalm says is enthroned in righteousness and justice, God himself. Not to submit in word only, but in actual activity. He's being called to turn from the pagan gods he worships and to turn to Yahweh, to humble himself before the God of the Israelites. And if not, Daniel is clear, he would be given over to his beastly reality for whatever amount of time would be enough to humble him so that he can know, as it says in verse 26, that heaven rules and not himself. Friends, that's the whole point of humbling. In order to know that heaven rules, I don't rule. Unfortunately, for Nebuchadnezzar, a year passes and Nebuchadnezzar's pride has gotten so strong that he's totally forgotten the dream and is walking in arrogance and pride. He's brought low by God because God gave him over in fullness to his beastliness. Rather than ruling over the beasts of the field, he had now become one of them, eating grass in the wilderness, much like the idol of an ox that was talked about in our earlier reading. Now, a quick side note, the number seven here, seven periods of time. Notice that when Daniel wants to talk about literal time, he says literal time. Look at verse 29, at the end of 12 months. So therefore, we know that when it's talking about other numbers in Daniel, it's probably used symbolically. This will be really important in a couple of chapters, okay? And so when he says seven periods of time, he's not saying a number of seven years most likely. He's saying whatever amount of time is perfect. Seven in biblical numerology is perfection and wholeness. Whatever amount of time is perfect for the purpose of bringing Nebuchadnezzar to an understanding, to humility, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Friends, God is so good in this humbling, isn't he? When he humbles us, he is good. The Lord will graciously give us over to our sin and beastliness, our arrogance and pride, so that we might be broken and humble ourselves in repentance. And friends, this is a grace. This is a grace. Now, if you don't believe in the whole wrath of God thing and hell and, you know, an eternity in a given place, Right? This doesn't seem like a grace, does it? Because it's all about me and what I can get right now. But if you actually believe the truth of the Bible, you actually believe in the eternal state that God either saved us from or allowed us to walk into, this is a grace. If we come to the terms, if terms, excuse me, if we come to terms with the fact that God is giving us over to our sin so that we might be saved from our sin and broken from it before we fall off the cliff, metaphorically, then we will actually welcome whatever humbling we encounter. And this is why when we find ourselves in a place of stress or suffering or difficulty, we need to ask God and ask godly counsel what we might need to learn from the situation or how we might need to humble ourselves in the midst. It could be that the suffering you are undergoing is just collateral damage from a sin-broken world. But even then, we can all ask ourselves, how might I humble myself so that God might be glorified in the midst of this circumstance? I was so blessed uh, a few nights ago, maybe even, la I think it might have been last night, uh, when my wife said something that was so profound and she didn't even realize it, but she talked about how when we were going through miscarriages, 
that there was this process going on. And at the time, people would come to us and say these really hurtful things about like, well, is there any hidden sin in your life or, um, you know, what's God trying to teach you, right? And it wasn't cased in, in empathy and compassion. It was just harsh. So it, it harmed us a lot. But for many years, I thought, well, there was nothing to learn from that. That was just brokenness, right? But God was doing a work in that. He was taking what Satan meant for evil, the miscarriages, and he was turning it into something glorifying because at the time we didn't know it, but both of us had idolatry of our own children. We idolized the idea of having children. And friends, that idea that my wife so accurately nailed on the head recently, it made me realize how I can still have my kids as idols. And I have to constantly humble myself. Every time one of my kids is sick, I instead of thanking the Lord for being with that child and knowing that he's covering them and praying for the Lord to intercede, I get angry. I say, God, why are you harming my child in my beastly nature? As opposed to seeing it, that Satan is doing something, but God's taking it for good and turning it into something that can be used for his glory and the good of our family. This is how we look at suffering and tribulation as a grace God may or may not be the ultimate source. He's always sovereign. He may not be the one who pressed the button, so to speak. Go read the book of Job. But he's going to use it. And so we can look at suffering as a grace. We can look at humiliation, humbling, as a grace. When we understand this viewpoint, we see humbling as a benevolent gift rather than a malevolent curse. Look with me, for example, at 1 Corinthians 5. Go there in your Bible with me. 1 Corinthians 5. You guys with me so far? 1 Corinthians 5, and we're just going to read through the first five verses. The church at Corinth had a member amongst them who was operating in blatant sexual sin that was being brought before the body, ultimate humiliation. They thought they were doing great because they were supposedly loving this member by keeping him amongst them, so they were kind of boastful, right? They were arrogant about their, their love of him. They thought they were doing the right thing, but Paul told them that their feeling and their gut was wrong. Look at 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Are you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan, to give them over. Does that sound familiar from Romans? To give them up to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that, with the hope that, his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. They should have been mourning, and instead of boasting, given him over to the fullness of his beastly urges by driving him from among them and surrendering him to the ultimate beast, Satan. You see, on the spiritual plane, God had already given up this brother. He'd already given him over to his sexual immorality and sin. And the church was actually denying God's work by saying, we will love this brother. They should have rather cooperated with God and given him over. How mean and hateful our current culture would scream. But friends, the Bible is clear. If we allow even a foothold for the devil in our own lives, he will take a mile to allow someone to continue in blatant sin is not loving. It's like letting a child play with a piece of TNT that's already lit. Think of Pharaoh and the process of his heart being hardened more and more because he was not broken. And friends, I have seen enough people that honored Christ with their lips completely nosedive in arrogance and pride that this should be a warning for every one of us. If we do not break off our sin and repent from our iniquities quickly, we will be seduced by the appeal of pride and the deceitfulness of sin and the appeal of making ourselves God. We must repent and break off our sins before our hearts are hardened. But friends, there's a difficulty, isn't there? That when we are operating in the flesh, it is impossible to humble ourselves under our own power. Like Nebuchadnezzar, the last thing that we need to learn is that we can only 
humble ourselves by cooperating with God's work in our lives. We can only humble ourselves by cooperating with God's work in our lives. In Daniel, we've been talking about destroying idols, humbling ourselves. But the problem is that I personally, Hans Rasmussen, I rarely feel like humiliation. I rarely feel like having confrontational conversations. I rarely feel like confession. If any of you in this room enjoy those things, I'm happy to make a counseling appointment for you to help you figure out your pathology. None of us feel like doing these things, but they are core actions of God's people. So if we're not just automatically going to feel like obedience or find joy in walking in humility or being humiliated, what do we do? Well, friends, this is again where the book of Romans helps us. Turn back to Romans 7 with me. Romans 7. I told you I was going to give you a lot today. Go to Romans 7. And we're going to look at Romans, a piece of Romans 7 and 8. This is one of the most debated sections of the New Testament. And you're probably very familiar with a portion of it. We're going to just read through a bit of it. And then I'm going to break it down for you using some images on the screen here. And hopefully it'll give you a good understanding of what the fight of a Christian is supposed to be like. Let's take a look at Romans 7, 14. It says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. In other words, enslaved to it. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. This is Paul's who's on first, right? It's a little confusing. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. This sounds like Cain, right? For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now just cast your eyes over a little bit to chapter 8, verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It's not possible. Now, there are various views on this section, and it can get a bit complex, but I'm going to try and break it down as quickly and simply as possible based on the view I ascribe to that's very, uh, I think, the prominent view in, in uh, Reformed theology so that we can see what Paul is saying and see how we can humble ourselves through the power of the Holy Spirit, okay? If you were to look at each of our Christian lives as a timeline, it would exist between being born dead in sin and ultimately, Lord willing, ending with glorification in Christ at the resurrection, okay? This is the timeline of every Christian. At some point as believers... Because of God's work on the cross and taking on our sin, he was able to forgive us our sins and draw us to himself in a process called justification. As part of that work, God reached into our hearts and placed his Holy Spirit into us so that we might see our depravity and sinfulness and declare our need for him to even have the ability to be humbled. And this was the moment of conversion, the moment where we were justified before God and set apart for his work. Now, obviously, the justification happened at the cross, but in our lives, we had a moment of justification. Now, many believe that Paul's discussion in Romans 7 is speaking of life before that conversion, where as a Jew, he wanted to follow God's law perfectly, but was unable to because what reigned in him was sin. He was therefore unable to submit to God no matter how much he said he wanted to do it. And so he cries out for salvation from this wretched master of his own flesh and sin. And who is it who saves him? Well, let's read from Romans 7.25. Good answer. You got the Sunday school answer. You'll get a star later. 7.25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
So then I myself serve the, law, serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. You see this before and after going on? For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. In other words, which one are you going to be, guys? For those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. I already said that. Verse 6. <laughs> For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact... The Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons and daughters of God. By Jesus' atoning death on the cross, we have been set free from our enslavement to sin and given freedom to follow the drawing of the Holy Spirit. For we who are disciples of Christ, we exist at any given moment in present sanctification, being drawn by the Spirit, having been justified and set apart, looking forward to ultimate glorification and welcoming God's work within us, causing us to be more modeled in His image. We therefore partner with the work of the Spirit in our lives to draw us forward into that sanctification. But friends, is this a passive work where we sit back and wait to be righteous until God makes us so? This often happens in the midst of suffering and trial and tribulation where we instead need to work with the Spirit to humble ourselves to His molding. All the while, we realize that even though we are justified and freed in righteousness, the flesh of this earthen vessel, of these neural pathways that have habits within them, are drawing us back to our beastly instincts, and if we do not rule over them, they will pull us back. Hans, can you be pulled back past that justification? That's a discussion for another day. I would say, and Paul would say, if you are in Christ, the answer is no. So what does it look like for us to submit to the work of the Spirit in terms of humbling ourselves? Well, the Bible is very clear. It just tells us, humble yourselves. This is James 4.10. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. 1 Peter 5.6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Okay, so just go humble yourselves, guys. That's the end of the sermon today. Well, no, the reality is in both of these passages, we're given insight into what it is. And I know I've already given you a ton, and so I feel bad for doing this, but it's actually in the grammar of the phrase, okay? So just bear with me here. We're, we're, we're getting there. I know you guys are tired. But in the grammar of the phrase, humble yourselves is actually a phrase, that word humble, it's a aorist passive imperative. Now, let me break this down for you. I am not great at grammar either, so I had to do some restudying on this. The imperative mood means we are commanded to act and the responsibility is on us. It is a command of God to humble ourselves. But interestingly, the passive voice means that we are not the one doing all the work, but rather we are the cooperator and recipient of someone else's action. We're the cooperator and recipient of someone else's action. And that aorist tense, we don't have it in English, it means it's basically outside of the idea of past, present, and future. 
It's in God's time, so to speak. Now, this grammatical structure means that humbling ourselves is an act of cooperating with God in the work he is trying to do in our lives. It's not all us by our works. It's not passively sitting back and waiting for Jesus to make us feel like being humiliated. It is cooperating with him. But so often we fight against humiliation or humbling. And when statements of truth are presented to us, we defend or justify or ignore. When we're asked to submit, we stand rigid instead. When humbling trials come, we stand in pride, angry with God. I don't know about you, but I don't want it to take God making me into an eagle-like cow creature in order for me to get the point of humbling myself. I would rather just cooperate with him in the first place. Amen? 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 As a community, we need to proactively look for avenues to humble ourselves before God and one another, because if we don't, it's not going to happen. We need to each play a part in creating a culture of vulnerability and confession. Now, let me give you just some last application things to consider here in the midst of how do we humble ourselves. And you can just write these down, okay, as, they, as I say them. First, we need to engage in, a, in daily and regular prayer life that consists more of praise, thanksgiving, and adoration than it does gimme, gimme, gimme. Praise, thanksgiving, and adoration. If we engage in a daily prayer life where we're giving him the glory, it will change our hearts. So let's still ask for things because he's a good father, but let's primarily give him praise and thanksgiving and adoration. This will make us focus on the fact that it's his majesty and his glory that matters. Secondly, we need to engage in daily Bible reading as a sign to ourselves that we are not the one who gets to determine good and evil, but that we need God's guidance. Daily prayer, daily Bible reading. Third, we need to proactively go to others to seek out their experience of us. We just instituted annual reviews for our staff and for me as a pastor. We're going to be doing that as well eventually for all the elders. And it's amazing when you seek out information how blind you are to the things that people experience with you. Friends, if you're just waiting around for somebody to have the gumption to come and tell you, hey, you're kind of being a jerk, it's probably not going to happen. You need to go and ask, hey, how do you experience me? Well, it's kind of tough. Oh, cool, let me listen so I can humble myself. When you hear consistency from more than one person in something that needs to change, accept it and commit to that change. Care more about God's reflection through you than your own pride and image. Fourth, when others bring correction to you, observe in yourself whether you are able to receive and process what is being said, or do you become defensive? When we get defensive, that's when we know someone has touched our idol. Prayer, Bible reading, proactively seeking others' experience of you, looking to see if we respond in defensiveness or receptivity. And then fifth, being willing to confess sin whenever you have conviction internally by the Spirit or when conviction is brought to you by your brothers and sisters. A culture of confession is again core to the people of God. This is why we're commanded to confess our sins one to another. Be willing to confess sin. And sixth, when trial or tribulation come, we need to mourn with one another while also reminding each other that it's in these moments of suffering that God is working within us a greater glory by humbling our hearts before him. His humbling, friends, is a benevolent grace, not a malevolent curse. If we're able to engage in these simple yet difficult steps of being humble Christ followers, then we may find that the humbling and humiliation that God needs to grace us with is far less severe than what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Either way, in any way that Christ has humbled us, it is the truly humbled person that can then turn like Nebuchadnezzar and proclaim to anyone that will listen that God is good and just for what he has done and proclaim his glory. So as we finish this morning and enter into communion, each one of us should have the prayer, Father, humble me by your spirit. Do whatever it takes to help me be able to give you praise and the glory that you deserve in my life.
And we should all partake in the same, it seems weird because he's a pagan king, but in the same proclamation and doxology of Nebuchadnezzar. For to you who lives forever and ever is our praise and honor, for your dominion is an everlasting dominion. Your kingdom endures from generation to generation. God, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and you do according to your will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay your hand or say to you, what have you done? For all your works are right, and God, your ways are just. And those of us who walk in pride, you are able to humble. Amen? Amen. Amen.